Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. We're going to jump right in. You have the text in front of you? Okay. So I want to say just, just one thing, actually, before we start with the text, which is an important note. The topic of this is Rabbi Nachman on joy and suffering. And when we're talking about joy, and especially when we're talking about suffering, let's just take a moment to honor the fact that everyone suffers, everyone experiences joy, and our experiences of joy, and particularly our experiences of suffering, are very, very different from one another. And so when we're talking about this in the abstract, or we're talking about it in the context of Rabbi Nachman's teachings, I, don't want, to, I want to be sensitive and make sure that we're, that we're aware and saying from the beginning that if there's something that we learn that resonates deeply or is dissonant, you feel like this is, this is somehow stepping on my toe in my own relationship to my suffering, there's a place for that in this conversation, and you can say so. Because this is a dynamic conversation, and Rabbi Nachman is not giving prescriptive statements of how we should be dealing with suffering. And in fact, the word should is maybe the enemy of our encounter with suffering or our encounter with joy. It's really more guidelines and maps and stories that can help us find more insight in relating to suffering and cultivating joy. So that's my kind of uh, my opening um, footnote to the, everything we're going to talk about. So I want to begin on the first page of your source sheet with a story. This is from Rabbi Nachman's stories. And you know that Rabbi Nachman of Breslov lived from 1772 to 1810. He's one of the great Hasidic masters. Eli Wiesel called him the greatest. He, first he said he's the greatest Hasidic storyteller of all time. Then he thought for a moment and he said he's the greatest Jewish storyteller of all time, I think. And then he thought even more and he said, I think he might be the greatest storyteller of all time. And Rabbi Nachman's known for his stories. He's also known for his, his sometimes radical, creative, deep, 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 insightful teachings. And he taught for many years, or relatively many years. He died when he was 38 years old. But he, for many, many years of his life, he taught. He gave lessons. And he gave lessons at the Shabbat table or over a holiday uh, gathering. But at the end of his life, he said, now I'm going to begin telling stories. Because I realize that the teachings, the frontal teachings that I'm trying to use to convey things to you, it's just not working. It's not getting through. We're not getting where we need to go. We have to go deeper. How do you go deeper from, from Torah teaching? You go to stories. So this is from a story that he told at the end of his life. Maybe his, his most well-known story, um, the story of the seven beggars. And this is a, a, a little excerpt from that. It, the story is a long, sprawling story with stories within stories. And this is a moment that is told by a storyteller within the story who is explaining his own life, his role in fixing the world, and why it is that there's a country that's impossible to approach because of the great joy and the great suffering that's there. And he says, For there are two birds, one male and one female, a couple. They're just one pair in the world. And the female was lost. He goes and seeks her, and she seeks him, and they were seeking each other very long, for a very long time, until they became lost from each other. And they saw they could not find each other. And so they stood still, and they made themselves nests. The male made a nest close to one country of the two countries mentioned above, and the female, and I'm skipping a little bit, and the female made her nest near the second country. And when night arrives, this pair of birds begins, each one of them begins to wail in a great voice of wailing. For each one wails with longing for its mate, as mentioned above, the mate that was lost. 
And this is the voice of wailing that's heard in these two countries. And because of this, this sound of wailing, of crying, no one can sleep in, in those places. It's impossible to sleep during the night. But in the daytime, it's impossible to arrive in these countries for a different reason. It's impossible to bear the joy that's there. For in the day, the birds gather, all the birds, the other kinds of birds, gather by each one of the pair of lost birds. And they console them, and they try to lesameach them, to bring them joy, to make them happy, with very great joy. And they give them words of consolation, that it's still possible to find one another. And therefore, from the great joy that emerges from that, it's impossible to bear. It's impossible to come close. You would be overwhelmed by joy and you would faint. You would become faint in the face of such joy. So at night, we have the impossibility of approaching because of the great suffering, the great crying, and during the day, the great joy. So this is sort of a map of the world, one of many, many maps of the world, according to Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. We live in a world that's defined by the gap, the gap between the two birds, the gap between, in, in traditional religious language, the gap between the creator and creation. But on a deeper level, the gap between the world we want to see and the world we're living in. We're not there yet. And so the world is defined by longing, by yearning. And for Rabbi Nachman, someone once called him the Rebbe, the master of yearning. Every Rebbe, every master had a different centerpiece, a different value that defined all of their work. There was a rabbi of humor, a rabbi of anger, a rabbi of song, a rabbi of silence in the Hasidic movement. Rabbi Nachman is the Rebbe of yearning. Because yearning is at the heart of the world. and It's the heart of what defines our world. We live in the gap. And the job that we have, before we get into joy or suffering, the job that we have is to move from being people whose hearts are closed and shut down to be, being people who are deeply sensitive, who can feel our feelings, and can become empathic to other people's feelings, and ultimately can become sympathetic somehow even to God's feelings, so to speak, whatever that means. So the process, what we're cultivating in this path of Rabbi Nachman is what he calls a broken heart. Now, we've heard of broken hearts before, right? Because we listen to the radio and we hear it in pop music for a long time where we read the romantic poets. And to have a broken heart, like, don't go breaking my heart, right? That's not what he's talking about when he says broken heart. What he means by broken heart is not someone who's been jilted or left by a lover and can no longer function. And he's not talking about depression. He's talking about something else. And we know this because he said there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. There's nothing as whole as a broken heart. And elsewhere he says, people make a mistake in life. They think that a broken heart and depression are the same or are similar experiences, but they're actually very different. They're almost opposites. He, said, he goes on to say, depression comes from the mara, which is a, an organ in the body that produces bile. He's drawing on medieval anatomy here. And I think he's doing it at, with humor to say, don't think that even, it's not even the same part of your body or yourself at work when you have a broken heart, the, the kind of broken heart we're talking about, or when you have depression. Depression comes from a different part of the body. As a total footnote to this, by the way, there's some new scientific studies that show a link between gut bacteria and depression. Interesting to think about. There are, there are ways in which our physical reality, our physical being, our physical state affects our emotional state. We, we know that intuitively, and I, I suspect and predict that we will learn a lot more about those connections in the coming years and decades. But Rabbi Nachman says depression is totally off the table. We're not talking about depression. When I say I want you to cultivate a broken heart, what I mean is the Leonard Cohen definition of brokenness. That's where the light gets in. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It's, it's the sense of vulnerability, the sense of letting go of armor, the sense of being covered with a shell that over time, through our work and our spiritual practice, we can crack and we can eventually remove and be walking in the world open, feeling, connected to our own subjective experience. Once we do that, we are now vulnerable to both joy and suffering. And the truth is, if you're not willing to feel any suffering, that's when you armor up. Right? That's when you put layers and layers of armor. And then it becomes very difficult to experience joy as well. 
So it's not a coincidence that Rabbi Nachman, in telling this story of the two birds, which for me has become a symbol of the world, these two birds, it's not a coincidence that he says that both the joy and the suffering can be intolerable. It could be that we, we avoid suffering, but also it could be that we avoid joy because it's so painful to let go of the armor. We're going to move on now on the source sheet, and I want to leave some time for questions and conversation. So as we're going, if you have questions, write them down. They're precious. I don't want to lose them. Um, so I want to skip to, we're going to come back, but we're going to skip a page to where it says, Lukutei Moharan, which is the book of Rabbi Nachman's teachings, 33. It's on the third page of this source sheet. I apologize that they're not numbered, pages number, are numbered, but it's the third page, Lukutei Moharan 33, 3, 1. And this is, this is actually the book. This is a tiny version of Lukutei Moharan. It's a travel version that I take with me on my travels. 411 lessons that were given over many years that cover every aspect of life and that require a lot of, a lot of EU and a lot of deep analysis to understand. Um, not the most accessible book, but at the same time um, available and relevant to people from all walks of life. It's been translated into many languages. Um, and this is a lesson where he's talking about Basically, he's talking about the relationship, and this is going to be a theme, the relationship between the oneness of all reality, the fact that we believe in a God who is one, and that means that God includes everything, encompasses everything, but also the reality that we experience on a, on a simple everyday level of multiplicity, of differentiation, of, of uh, competing values, of conflicts, how can there be conflicts if there's oneness? How do you connect to the oneness beyond differentiation? That's sort of the, the theological, philosophical part of it. But the other part of it is very practical, which is how do I deal with my own suffering when I have a bad day? So he quotes first from Ecclesiastes in the Bible. There are two types of days, Rabbi Nachman says, good days and bad days. Yemei tov and yemei ra. There are good days and bad days, because it's written in Ecclesiastes and Kohelet. So on a day of good fortune, enjoy the good fortune. This is not a perfect translation. I would translate it slightly differently from the, from the original Hebrew. I would translate it as, on a good, in a good day, be in the good, or be in good. Okay? Be in good is a little awkward, but it's closer to the Hebrew. On a good day, be in good, inhabit the good. And on a bad day, look or see. So on a good day, be, and on a bad day, see. We have two different things we need to do, two different practices. One is to be, and one is to see. What does it mean? Rabbi Nachman says, what does it mean to see? We have to talk about what it means to be, but let's say for now it just means to experience the good. You're experiencing something good, so let yourself experience it. You have permission to experience the good moments fully and not worry about what's coming or is it real or just let yourself experience it. And when there's a bad moment, God forbid, then look. What do you look for? A person has to look very well. A person has to look there very well. And it's a looking, it's kind of an investigating. It's a digging in because you will certainly find good days in the bad days you will certainly find good days in the bad days. So I'm having a bad day, and I look, and I find a good day hiding in the bad day. So now, what, what is the day? Is it good? Is it only good? Well, the verse itself still calls it a bad day. And there's, we have a general principle that when the verse itself refers to something a certain way, then even if we interpret it radically differently, we never let go of the simple meaning, meaning of the text. We can't contradict the simple meaning of the text. And the simple meaning of the text is it's a bad day. So here we have, on a good day, be in the good, which, by the way, is not so simple, right, to let yourself feel the good. That's already a whole, a whole avoda, a whole practice. But on a bad day, seek until you find the good day inside the bad day. But it's still a bad day, because the verse calls it a bad day. Why am I belaboring this? Because it's really important and I think is a key to tell us about what we're going to see next, that when you 
when you seek and you dig and you investigate and you find a way of finding some good in this experience that's a difficult experience, often if someone says that to you in a time that you're going through something difficult, you know, you'll learn, don't worry, you'll learn from this, it's all for the best, right? That can, I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you in a tough moment, but that can feel like an act of violence. That can feel like dismissive, right? Or you're not taking seriously how bad this is or how hard this feels. It's not maybe quite as bad as snap out of it, stop being sad, which is, which is really bad, but it's, but it's bad. You know, it's like not honoring your experience. If your experience is you're having a bad day, then my job is to honor your experience. But also, I want to encourage you to look deeper and see if there's something hiding inside that experience. But as I do that, as I look for myself for the good, or I encourage you to do that, I never want to betray your experience. I never want to dishonor you. It's really important to remember. So that's what Rabbi Nachman's doing here. He's saying, it's still a bad day. The verse calls it a bad day. It's still going to feel like a bad day, and it's going to be legitimate for you to describe it that way. And the Torah describes it that way. Even as you're seeking and digging and investigating and finding the good day hiding in the bad day. Both of those things can coexist. That's important to keep in mind as we go to the next source. And the next source is right below that is the Hebrew. And on the last page is the English translation of that Hebrew. Lukut 65. And here I have to tell you that Rabbi Nachman himself was someone who suffered greatly in life. He emphasized joy. He taught about joy, but he suffered greatly in many, many ways. And at one point in his life, he lost a child. And after he lost a child, uh, an infant boy, his students came in to visit him and to comfort him. And Rabbi Nachman, the Rebbe, was crying. He was crying so intensely that they became afraid and they ran out of the room. They couldn't handle, they couldn't hold the intensity of his emotion. And they ran away. And they came back a couple of hours later and he said to them, you know, if you had not run away, I would have told you something very beautiful. And then he proceeded to teach this lesson. So there's a context to this lesson. Everything he's saying, he's experiencing. And this is a general principle in Rabbi Nachman's Torah that everything he's teaching is something he experienced but at the same time, there's a tradition that every Torah, every lesson he gave in this book, he pulled from someone else's experience as well. Some of them we know about, some we have stories about. A student would come to, there's one famous story where a student came to Rabbi Nachman and said, I had a really weird dream last night. And in my dream, I was in the forest and I met a man and he gave me a sword. And the dream went on, he described the dream. And Rabbi Nachman responded to the dream by teaching what is now lesson I believe, two in Likutei Moran. The second lesson came out of this dream that his follower, that his student had. There are many, many stories like that. Some of them we don't know. And there's an oral tradition in the Breslover Hasidim, the followers of Rabbi Nachman, that every lesson in Likutei Moran, every lesson Rabbi Nachman taught was drawn by one of his followers, but not only in his own time. So it could be from later also. It could be that he's, he saw something that's going on with you and he, he's speaking to it. You can take that or leave it, but you know, sometimes you have the experience of studying something and it feels like this is really describing my experience. So that could be real when that happens, when those moments of resonance happen. And here, this is the lesson he taught after going through something really, really terrible and that filled him with suffering. And he starts by talking about a field of souls, an orchard of souls, a garden of souls, and there's an, a person who manages the garden, who takes care of the garden. And he's talking about the experience of suffering. And here he's describing and positing, really, that in truth, now I'm reading, there's no evil whatsoever in the world. Everything is only good. He's saying this right after losing his son. Really, everything is only good. The pain a person nonetheless experiences because of suffering, God forbid, is only because awareness is taken away. Awareness is taken away so that it's impossible to focus on the ultimate purpose, which is entirely good. And the Hebrew for ultimate purpose here is tachlis. Have you ever heard the word tachlis? Used as like, it's often used in modern Hebrew slang as like, 
we're, we're t it's a nice conversation, but talkless, how much is it going to cost? Or how much are you offering me for the job? It's the, sort of the practical part of the conversation. But in Hasidic usage, it's not the, uh, the material practical, it's the spiritual practical. It means the telos, the ultimate end, the ultimate purpose of creation. Where's everything going? And according to our understanding through a, a Jewish mystical lens, everything started with oneness. Everything started with God's oneness. And then creation happened. And at the end, everything will be one again. Everything will come back to oneness. But the oneness at the end is different than the oneness in the beginning. Why? Because the oneness at the end will have within it all the multiplicity of stories that happened throughout human history and throughout creation. So in a sense, this, the trajectory of creation is one to two, which is, the, which is a representative in, in mysticism for multiplicity in, in general, back to one. One, two, one. Or in Hebrew, Aleph, Bet, Aleph, which spells Abba, spells Father. That's the movement of all of history from a, from a Jewish mystical perspective. And Rabbi Nachman saying that it's possible to connect even now to that end point, the tachlis, the ultimate end of things where everything will become one again. We can somehow perceive that for, for moments, moments of time. That's what he means by the ultimate end point. So everything is good. And then he goes on to quote from the, from the sages of the Talmud who talk about the difference between the world that we have now and the world that we will have in the future when the world is finally come to its redemption and its fruition and its fulfillment. And the difference is that, the difference actually that the rabbis of the Talmud talk about is the difference in how we perceive suffering. And so Rabbi Nachman is saying that it's possible even now to experience suffering the way we would experience it if we had total consciousness of oneness and of goodness. And then he does something he does very often, which is he connects a physical experience to a spiritual experience. And he says, through this you can understand an inexplicable thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to just say it out loud to you. He says, when a person experiences pain, they close their eyes, right? Even, even if I stub my toe, I close my eyes. If it's really intense pain, I close my eyes for sure. And he says, you know that if you want to see something that's far away, you squint. You squint to see what's far away because you want to focus your vision. You want to avoid the distractions or the, uh, the dissolution that can come in. You, you really focus your vision and you want to see things that are far away. You contract and narrow your vision to do so. And he uses that now as a metaphor for what he's describing. What if you want to see the ultimate? What if you want to see the ultimate goal, the ultimate endpoint of creation? What if in a moment of suffering, Rabbi Nachman himself, who's suffering immensely and was crying before, but now is clear again, now is somehow connected to joy, what if in the interim he closed his eyes so tightly that he could see beyond this world, that he could see beyond this world to the ultimate tachlis, the ultimate oneness, the place where everything is good and the place where everything is whole, everything is one. What he says here is that it's possible to do that. He goes on to say it's impossible to do that permanently. If you try, you're, if, you, if someone tells you, I, I've experienced, I've, I've gotten to the place of unity consciousness and I live there, they're lying to you. We're human beings. It's not possible. Because the next thing happens. The next moment happens. Rabbi Nachman says it's possible to, get to, to access that place to close your eyes and see beyond the suffering and the context and the limitations of this world in a mystical way, connect to the unity that's waiting for you at the end where everything really will be good. Everything really will be one and already is. You can connect to that place for a moment or a few moments. And when you return from that experience of oneness back to your everyday life, this is the important part, it leaves an impression. It leaves an impression on you. You're not the same as you were before that experience. And that's a way of dealing with suffering and connecting to joy. And it seems, it's implied, it's not said explicitly, that this is what he himself went through in the intervening hours between when his students ran away from him and his tears, and the moment now when he's composed, and he's clear, and he's filled with joy. So this is another map. It's possible to connect to that consciousness, but only temporarily, 
You're going to come back to regular human consciousness, but you're going to be somehow changed. It's going to leave an impression. There's going to be a feeling. I, I associate it with like, if you, if you have, a, a, if you have a, a wedding, you went to a wedding of a dear friend or family member, and the glow of that experience stays with you, you know, or, or another celebration, or just even just a beautiful dinner with friends and family, and something really joyful. And sometimes, like three days later, you're walking around, and you feel a sense of, you feel like a glowy sense, is the best I can describe it. You don't, and you don't even know why for a moment, and then you remember, what's the memory that's causing this feeling of joy? That feeling of joy is there sometimes before the thought kicks in, before the memory or the association kicks in. Have you ever had that experience? Happens to me a lot after joyous moments. And I can't remember at first, why am I feeling this joy? And then I remember, the thought is, lags behind the feeling. And so here also, the impression that we can take back, Rabbi Nachman says, the impression we can take back from experiences of, of oneness, those fleeting experiences that are beyond all suffering, those feelings can stay with us. But we can't live there. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Rabbi Nachman is famous for saying, mitzvah gedola liot besimcha tamid. It's a great mitzvah, it's a great commandment to be joyful always. And so, you know, the question is, how do you do that? How can you say that it's a mitzvah? How can you, like, legislate an emotion? Is simcha an emotion, or is it more than an emotion? And by the way, he's not the only one to talk about this. The, the mitzvah, the commandment of joy, appears in the Torah about the holiday of Sukkot, that you should be ach sameach. You should be usually translated as only, only besimcha, only happy, only joyful. And, you know, because of that, I find personally that it's the hardest period to be joyful <laughs> because it's legislated, because suddenly I have, like, resistance to it. On Tisha B'Av, I, I find myself often, like, I have to tamp down my, my excitement about something. At some point during the day, I find myself a little bit too joyful for the day. And I have to remind myself, this isn't the day for joy. This is the one day we're supposed to, like, we're, we're supposed to tamp it down a little bit. And on Sukkot, when we're supposed to be joyful, is when I struggle with joy. So go figure. But Rabbi Nachman's extending it way beyond that. He says, he says that this is a, a general, uh, perpetual commandment. How can, you, how can you command someone to feel a certain thing? I, I don't think you can. I, think, I don't think that's what it means. I think it means the mitzvah is, like other mitzvot, to cultivate joy, to do the practices of joy. And so I'm going to share two practices now from Rabbi Nachman, and then we'll open the floor to questions, reactions, conversation. So the first is on, <coughs> on the second page, in the middle of the page, where it says, or toward, actually in English, it's towards the bottom, Likut Iran, part 223, on the topic of simcha, on the topic of joy. By the way, you know that in Hebrew there are many words for joy, so there are different wavelengths of joy. There's simcha, sason, gila, rina, ditza, chedva, there's different qualities of joy. He's talking about simcha, which is the most, probably the most common, commonly used word for joy. And he says, on the topic of simcha, I'm going to give you a mashal, an analogy or a metaphor. Sometimes when people are happy and dancing, so sometimes they'll grab someone from outside the dance, someone who's depressed and, and gloomy, so, I mean, I've, I've actually seen this at weddings. You know, there's a dance, and, you know, Uncle Bob is in the corner glowering. And someone, I have one friend who does this everywhere he goes. He, 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 he bring, even if there's no dance going on, he'll grab people and organize a dance, like in, in, in synagogue on Shabbat or anywhere, really. But especially when there's a dance, but there's one person outside, someone will go outside of the dance and bring that person in and they'll bring him in against his will into the circle of dancers. They force him to dance. They won't take no for an answer. They're pulling, and he's pulling the other way, and they're pulling back, and they win, and they bring him into the dance, and he's like reluctantly dancing around the circle with everybody else, but eventually maybe gets into it, right? 
That happens at Jewish weddings, especially in bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. Rabbi Nachman says that is a great image for our inner experience of joy and suffering. It's the same with happiness. When a person is happy, gloom and suffering stand aside. The yisurim nistalkim minatsad, the suffering disappears off to the side because there's no room for it here. There's a dance going on. You can't, you can't really dance and be sad at the same time. So to avoid the dance, the suffering leaves. The part of myself that's suffering goes off to a corner somewhere. And, you know, it's good. It's good. Like, at least I have a dance going on in my, in my center. I have a dance going on. It's good. There are parts of me that are not participating in the dance, but I have a dance going on. Rabbi Nachman says that's good. But on the next page, at the top, Yet greater still, greater than that, greater than having a dance and other parts of myself that are separate from the dance, is to gather courage to actually pursue the, the gloom or the suffering and to introduce it into the joy so that the suffering itself turns into joy. Just like Uncle Bob, just like grabbing someone into the circle, if I can, when I'm in a state of joy, if I can focus for just a moment with courage, it takes courage to do this, to bring the part of myself that's in suffering, that's still feeling sad, into that joy, that's even a higher level. A person should transform gloom and suffering into joy. It's like a person who comes to a celebration. The abundant joy and happiness transforms all worries, depression, and gloom into joy. The person has grabbed the gloom and introduced it against its will into the joy, like in the analogy before. So I love this for several reasons. One is... If there are any psychologists in the room, it's, it's a really interesting parallel between interpersonal experiences, being at a wedding or, or a celebration and the dance and the person outside the dance, and the inner experience. And there are different psychological approaches that focus on parts, parts work or the different aspects of ourselves or the ways that we are multiple. And it's, and it's difficult to describe yourself as just one thing or even existing in one state at any given moment because there's a lot of stuff going on in all of us, all the time. So there are approaches that, uh, that allow for that, that name that, and this is, this is a Hasidic approach that does the same thing and draws a parallel between the, inner, the intrapersonal and the interpersonal in ways that are really, I think, really instructive. But it also means that on a practical level, there's a place of joy in me, and perhaps there's always a place of joy in me, whether I'm feeling it or not, whether I can access it or not, and even to take that on as a thought experiment or as a, as a kind of theory of self, whether it's objectively true or not, I, I don't know, but, but let's pretend together that there's always a place of joy in us, that there's always a spark of joy at the center of your chest, let's say. And you can sometimes feel it and you can sometimes not, but it's always there. And it was there for Rabbi Nachman in that terrible moment of suffering, even while he was crying, intensely, there was still that spark of joy because it's a human capacity that we have. And then there are other parts of us that are not plugged into that, not connected to that. And so the practice is when I'm, when I'm in a place of joy, when I'm in a good day or a good moment and I'm feeling the joy, to have compassion for the parts of me that are not yet involved, not yet participating in the joy, and to bring those parts in. And if I can do that over time, I'm integrating more and more parts of myself into the dance, into the dance of joy. You got a question? I just want to say something really fast that um, I've studied a lot of Rabbi Nachman, already, but uh, one of the things that really blew my mind was when Nachman says, it's so important to be happy. If you are depressed, and it's so important to be happy that you need to do something even silly, really silly, just just to make yourself happy. Turn somersaults, do, tell jokes, do whatever, do whatever <clears throat> makes you happy, whatever makes you laugh. And I, I, I love that. I think that's, I think it's a teaching. Thank you so much. Rabbi Nachman, says, uh, Rabbi Nachman says that, and then his student, Rabbi Nassim, says that nowadays, that's really the main way to cultivate joy, is to do, at least occasionally, to do silly things, to do a somersault or make a bad joke, and so there are, there are some people who take this, I know Breslov or Hasidim would take this very seriously. And they're like, they're always doing silly things and they're fanatically serious about it. Their primary spiritual practice in the world because, because they believe that it leads to joy and it, and it does. So there's actually, there's a couple of 
elements here, and then I want to talk about the other practice. Um, there's the element of suffering in life. And if you notice before, Rabbi Nachman said, the reason that we suffer is that our, our consciousness is taken away from us. So I just want to make a distinction between pain and suffering. There's pain, which is, you know, if I, if I cut my finger, I'll experience pain. There's a neurological, there's a nervous system activity happening that is causing pain. But the word suffering or yisurim in Hebrew is more than that. Rabbi Nachman's saying when you put pain and the absence, pain minus consciousness, pain plus the absence of consciousness, the removal of consciousness leads to suffering. When you bring consciousness back in, when you bring da'at, consciousness back in, whether it's the, the consciousness of the ultimate end of things or the consciousness of the reality that there's something good happening somewhere, somewhere in the world right at this moment, or there's something to be thankful for even in a moment of suffering, whatever the consciousness is, then it's no longer suffering. But it still could be pain. There still could be pain there. And I just want to say that again because I don't want us to think that somehow, in addition to feeling suffering, now I should feel bad about myself for feeling suffering because I'm not living up to what Rabbi Nachman's telling me. That's not what he means. There's still pain there, but in the pain, it's possible to cultivate consciousness that removes the suffering element and leaves the pain. There's still the, the, the nervous system or the, the, the inherent emotional experience of pain, but not the suffering. There are, by the way, echoes of this in Buddhism too. Right? If you think about the, the, the beginning of Buddhism is that everything is, all, everything is suffering because good moments are good, but bad moments are obviously suffering. Good moments are not suffering, but they are suffering because they're impermanent. They're going to go away. So everything is suffering. That's the first, the, the first insight of the Buddha. Right? Rabbi Nachman and his students also say that every person experiences suffering every day, and we work with it. And the way to work with it is to bring in more and more awareness and more and more consciousness. And one of the ways of bringing in awareness is through what you said, is through acts of silliness or humor. And the other one is perhaps Rabbi Nachman's, one of his most well-known teachings, and also if you go into um, shuls, synagogues of the Breslover Hasidim, you'll often see this written over the, the Ark of the Torah. Um, and it's the teaching called Azamra, I Will Sing. And I wanted, to, I wanted it to be a, a verbal kind of transmission, so I didn't give, put it on the source sheet. I wanted us to talk about it. Because it's very, very simple at face value. And Rabbi Nachman says that you need to know, he starts by saying, know, know this, that it's important to judge everyone favorably. And even someone who seems like a really bad person if you dig and hunt, you can find some aspect of good in that person. And by doing so, by finding the sparks of goodness in that person, you can actually cause a transformation in that person. You can actually bring them over to the side of good. And then he says something much more difficult, I think, which is you have to do the same thing with yourself. You have to do the same thing with yourself. And this becomes the one of the primary practices of Rabbi Nachman and his followers. It's, finding, it's called finding the good points. It's called Azamra, I will sing, because it's connected to a verse in Psalms that says, I will sing. And Rabbi Nachman's saying, each time you find a good point, you're, it's like finding a musical note and playing it. And when you do that, you string them together, you make a melody. And you make a melody in relation to other people and in relation to yourself, and that melody rises up and really can fix the world. And so this is a very, we're talking, about, we're talking about cosmic matters of awareness and consciousness and the inner psychology and spirituality of the dance, the joy, the parts that are left out. And those are, all, those are great images to work with, but they're also a little bit abstract. And so when I, in Rabbi Nachman's Torah, it's very important to always try to bring it down to something very, very specific and practical. The very specific and practical thing that I want to share with you around joy and suffering. Cultivating joy and bringing consciousness into suffering is very simple, very practical, and something that, that I try to do. In periods of my life, I've done it every day. Now I do it every, every week or so. Is to sit down and list good points about yourself and about other people. 
Very, very simple. Find kudos tovos. Find good points. Things that you appreciate about yourself. Things that you appreciate about someone else. Things that you're grateful for. Very simple, and I'm sure you've heard this before from some source, maybe not from a Hasidic teacher, Rabbi Nachman, maybe it's just from you know, an article you read in, in, in Newsweek or something talking about positive psychology. Thank God that this, this material, this kind of idea is so, so common nowadays, but now we have to actually do it. So the quest, the experiment, the, the experiment slash challenge that I'll throw out on the table if you want to take it on, is to try this for two weeks. When you wake up in the morning, and before you go to sleep at night, write down 10 Nikodotovot. That's challenge number one, if, should you choose to accept this mission. And, and see after two weeks, how does it help your general state of mind and, your, and that spark of joy? Does it feel like it's, it's a little bit richer, brighter? Are you, does it feel like you're cultivating that? And if so, continue. There's another version of this, which is to sit down one time and do the same exact exercise about yourself. This time it's about yourself. But push it, push the number to something very, very seemingly difficult, like, like find 50 or 100 good points about yourself. I've done this exercise several times. It's very difficult because we tend to remember the, the negative things. Most of us tend to remember we're trained. For whatever reason, we're trained to focus and remember the negative things. If I give a, a, a talk and you know, there's great feedback from 90% of the people and, you know, one person says a critical comment or something, I will remember that 10 years later and I won't remember the positive stuff, right? <laughs> so how do we change, how do we rewire ourselves? So sit down and try to find 100 Nikudo to vote about yourself. You might have to divide your, your life into uh, years. You might think about my, my first five years, my second, you know, you, you have to find uh, strategies to dig in and remember things. But once you find it, for the next two weeks, just read it before you go to sleep at night. These are practices from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. They happen to match up very nicely to positive psychology and things we're learning about how our, our brains work. Very simple. But what's so radical is that the more I do it with, with regard to myself, the more I can do it with regard to other people. And the part that is mystical, and you won't find in positive psychology, perhaps, is that by doing this with other people, you can actually transform them. Not just because you'll behave differently towards them, that we can understand, that you will find in, in, in other places, but somehow in some sort of quantum, mystical, mysterious way, you can actually transform people around you. So this is a, an advice that Rabbi Nachman gives if you're dealing with someone difficult in your life, is to find the good points in that person in a sustained, focused way over time and turn your perception of them into something completely positive, radically positive, based on data. It's not just saying vaguely they're, they're a nice person. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a conceit. It's, ground, it's grounding it in specific things that you can point to, specific moments and specific aspects of things that you, that you notice, that you're choosing to notice. And that, over time, can transform a person very deeply. One of my teachers in Breslov said that in his neighborhood in Israel, there was a man who was known as the, the most joyful person anyone had ever met. Like, they, if you saw him on the street, you'd know what I'm talking about. He just radiated tremendous joy. And my teacher said that this man, for most of his life, was a depressive person and a depressed person by nature and by cultivation. He was very, very down all the time. And it was these practices that turned him into who he is today. Now, I don't want to oversell. That's, not, that's like a story I heard from my teacher, right? I've been working with this stuff for many years, and I can say I'm, I still struggle with all of this. I still struggle with cultivating joy. But, but I know for sure that it's made a very big difference in my life. And, and the, the ultimate the ultimate acceptance that we live in a world of longing, a world where there's a gap between the reality and the aspirations and the ideals that we yearn for so much. The birds have not yet found their way to each other in the story that we started with. Until that day comes, I don't want to be totally filled with joy and lose my empathy for suffering. Right? I don't want to be one of those people who's jumping up and down in ecstasy while other people are suffering. 
So the question here is, can I hold together my empathy, my awareness of suffering, my sensitivity, but also have enough joy to keep me going so that I can keep fighting the good fight? And Rabbi Nachman said, people think that the goal is joy. It's important for its own sake, but it's also really critical because joy is the capacity that gives you the power to work and keep working and not give in to despair and make a difference in the world when you're confronting difficult things. Joy is the light that shines in the darkness. And I'll end with the famous quote of Rabbi Nachman 200-something years ago. He yelled out to his followers, Gewalt ein shum yeosh ba'olam klal. There's no despair at all. No matter what's happening, there's no despair. And the Hasidim in the Warsaw Ghetto had that phrase painted on the outside of their shul. And even when things were turning darker and darker and darker, Emmanuel Ringelblum, who kept a diary of what was happening in the Warsaw Ghetto, wrote that the Breslover Hasidim are still dancing with the same fervor and the same joy as before the war. There's power here. So I bless you to access that power and cultivate your joy and raise up the suffering. I want to... Do we have time for a few questions? Yeah, so we have about 10 minutes for questions. I'm going to open up with uh, one we have from our friends at Aleph on the live stream. And that question is, um, in the case you shared of Rebbe Nachman's Torah, where we're struggling with a, a person um, and we want to uh, point out the positive attributes, do we do that? The question is, do we do that privately to ourselves or publicly like, engaging with them? Thank you. It's a great question and an important one. You do it privately, at least at first. This is not an interpersonal activity. It's not in the Torah of Tochacha in any way. It has nothing to do with the process of giving feedback to somebody, whether critique or even positive feedback. This is a purely internal process. And, and that's hard enough to make the shift to really see someone else in a different way. Over time, it's possible that there will, be, there will come a moment when there's also an opportunity to have a conversation with a person and clear something. But if you do it prematurely before you actually own the, the good points in yourself about that other person, then it may not go the way you want it to go. So it's really important to take the time to really develop this inside internally first before then approaching the other person. Yeah, will you say your name too? Hi. Uh, what's, what's your name? My name is David. Hey. So you mentioned you know, Aleph, Beit, Aleph, unity, duality, unity. And you talked about good and evil in duality, and then sort of segued into unity is all good. Um, and it seems to me there have got to be some differences in the definition of a dualistic, uh, uh, of good in duality. There's a diff different definition of good in duality compared to a transcendental goodness. Right. And so my question is, can you talk a little bit about what that difference is, and then also say, how do we know that in, in uh, unity, uh, the, the transcendental unity is closer to goodness than it is to evil? How do we know that? Wonderful. You could have a resolution where everything is evil, but everything is unified and resolved. Yeah, yeah good. So, so first of all, this... This uh, portion of, the, of Lesson 65 that we were looking at is, there's a part of it that I didn't include in the source sheet, just for reasons of length, where Rabbi Nachman quotes the Talmud. And the Talmud says, there's a verse in the Torah that says, On that day, God will be one and God's name will be one. And the rabbis of the Talmud ask, Now God is not one? with God's name. I mean, we, we're monotheists. We believe that God is one even now, even in the multiplicity and the duality and the, the experience that we have in this world. God is one now as well. What does it mean that on that day God will be one and God's name will be one? And the rabbis answer something very interesting. They say that now when something, when, when tragedy happens, there's a blessing for it. Because in Judaism we have blessings for many, many things. Um, and the blessing is Blessed is the true judge, or the judge of truth. Sort of acknowledging, we shouldn't know from these things, but in moments of tragedy, it's acknowledging that God knows what God is doing, and it's sort of a sense of acknowledgement and submission. 
And that's the blessing for tragedy. But there's a blessing we say for joyous moments, and it's a different blessing. We say, Hatova metiv. We say either Shechianu or the rabbis are talking here, I think, about Hatova metiv, which means the good who also bestows good. And there's a blessing we say when it's a, a joyful moment that's shared with other people. It sort of parallels the blessing, right? It's good for me, but we're also sharing it together. Um, and so the rabbis say, now we have two different blessings, but in the future, we will only say Hatova metiv. We will only say, blessed is God who is good and bestows good, no matter what happens. So that's the rabbinic teaching that we're talking about, and that's the rabbinic teaching where they say that is the resolution of on that day God's name, God is one and God's name will be one as well. In other words, God's name is the way we relate to God, and we relate to God through a prism of duality, and we experience tragedy as tragedy and joy as joy, and they're different things. In the future, what's so, one of the things that's so interesting about this rabbinic teaching is that the rabbis, the rabbis don't say in the future bad things won't happen. Rabbis say there will be one blessing for everything, whether it's good or bad, right? The, the, the way of the world will continue in some sense, but our consciousness will be such that we will perceive everything that's happening as an expression of goodness and God's bestowing of goodness to us. And we'll, recognize, we'll really experience that and feel that. So well, That's the same as when you said essentially pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Right. Suffering is a, lack, is, a, is a lack of consciousness, right. And the rabbis are saying that we, we, collective, we can work on this individually, and in moments we can achieve greater consciousness. But as a collective, as, as humanity, as a species, we, and as cre all of creation, even beyond humanity, we will eventually attain this level of consciousness. This will be, uh, there's another biblical verse that says, this consciousness of God will, will flow through the land like the waters cover the ocean. It will, become, it will become the reality. The reality will be a change of consciousness. Now, there's a lot to talk about of, you know, the Messianic era and teachings about the Messianic era and what does that mean? And there's, there's fundamental arguments in our tradition about that because we're Jews and we argue about everything, but also because there's a humility to say we don't fully know what that's going to look like, just like we say we don't really know what happens after death, right? We have certain teachings that point us in certain directions, but... There's a fundamental argument about whether nature will change or whether just the political reality and the moral reality and the ethical reality of the world will change. But the bottom line is consciousness will change. We will have, we will have a different kind of perception in the end of days. Um, and we can borrow from that even in our lifetimes now. Your, your second question is a much more difficult one. How do we know that the world is benign in any way? And from a traditional perspective, we know it because the Torah says so. Right? The Torah says that God created the world um, and everyone under, pretty much everyone understands that to be um, an expression of love, an expression of wanting to share God's love with the world. But I, I want to say let's not, let's not start from a traditional standpoint. Let's start from a, just a pure philosophical standpoint. And I would say it like this, and this is, this is my argument. You can take it or leave it, but this is my argument. Um, before creation, what was God lacking? Or what was oneness lacking? Other express itself? In philosophical terms, even more... Nothing. Nothing. God is lacking nothing before creation. And that's all, everything you said is the same, actually. They're all connected, right? If God is lacking nothing, then that itself is a lack. Because if you're lacking nothing then there's no possibility for yearning or longing or growth or the resolution of a yearning. Nothing, nothing has any taste, so to speak, if we put it in human terms. If I have everything I need, eventually I, I will suffer from boredom, depression. I won't, I, won't, I won't experience pleasure in anything. And I certainly won't have any possibility of relationship. So I won't have any sort of expression, as you said. I won't have any other to relate to, as you said because I'm not lacking anything. And so God creates the world in order to experience lack, in order to experience the possibility of lack. And in Hasidic parlance, that word lack, chisaron, is a very, very important word. Not just in Rabbi Nachman, in, in, in Hasidism in general. That is the possibility of growth right there. That's the possibility of 
anything good. It comes out of the experience of a lack. There's no birth. There's no creativity. There's no uh, kindness without lack. All those things emerge from lack. The wholeness is the ultimate armor, and therefore it's really dangerous. If you meet someone who feels like completely self-sufficient, there's a little bit of danger there, right? I want, to, I, want to be, I, want to, I want to look for the places in myself and in others where we know that we need each other. In the Bible, you know, it says we have to give a gift to the temple. It was a half a shekel. It was a half a shekel. It was a half a coin. And one of the great Hasidic masters, the Meshilach, says it's to teach us this point. The same reason that many of the uh, measurements of things in the temple are in half measures. It's an ama and a half, ama v'chetzi. Uh, two amas and a half, five amas and a half. The half is important because it's teaching us that we are lacking without each other. We need each other. And we don't like that about ourselves sometimes. We don't want a need, but the need is the most glorious thing we have. It's what allows for relationship. And so if God, if, if all of that, if we can accept all of that, that somehow the process of creation was driven by a desire for the experience of lack, the experience of otherness, the experience of relationship, then to me that points to a benign universe. Because a God who would create the world lacking, um, lacking otherness, lacking relationship, it makes more sense to me that, that, that God would then create a world of otherness to relate to, to, have, to build relationship with, rather than to build a, an evil empire on the backs of. Right? Because then, then the, the evil emperor is still lonely. But God is vulnerable to us. God allow, so to speak, in Jewish theology, God allows vulnerability. God says, I want you to do certain things, but I'm giving you free choice. That's the story of the Garden of Eden, and you get to decide, do you do what I want or not? And I'm, in, I'm at your mercy in a certain way. And that's the responsibility we have as human beings. It's a beautiful gift. It also means that we can earn anything good that we experience. We can earn it, we can own it. So that's my philosophical argument for a benign universe. There's a lot more to say about this, obviously, um, but I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. I find something very poetic in this feeling of pain over joy. It's like my cup runs over and my heart is full. It's a sweet pain mm. because it, you're, it's so full and it's so, it's so wonderful and it's so beautiful that, that you, you can hardly bear the joy. So I just Thank you. That is, that is, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I was trying to describe the difference between heartbreak and um, the, the holy heartbreak of Hasidism and the heartbreak we talk about in songs. And the holy heartbreak of Hasidism is very much what you just described. It's feeling like there's so, I'm feeling so intensely. And, you know, in some, in some other traditions, in, in Greek philosophical traditions, you were, in Stoicism, for example, you're supposed to become less and less feeling and more and more driven by your rational mind. In Hasidism, you're supposed to, you're, you're really cultivating your feeling, your subjectivity more and more so that you experience the, the colors and the emotions and the sounds of life and the tastes of things with greater and greater vividness. And as you grow spiritually, you grow in that vividness. Things don't become black and white because now you're suddenly an ascetic saint you become more and more engaged in things and you're experiencing it with all of you. So I'll end with one very brief story, um, not about Rabbi Nachman, about another Rebbe who would always drink his tea while holding a sugar cube. And his students finally asked him, why are you drinking your tea while holding the sugar cube in your hand? Why don't you put the sugar cube in the tea? And he said, you know, I've gotten to the point where I can taste the sugar cube through my fingers. And so one of the students, when the, when the Rebbe left, he picked up the sugar cube and he tasted it and it had no taste left. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. 
please consider going to www.valleybeitmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.